You're listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast. Here's the deal. If you make disciples by sitting around and talking, you shouldn't be surprised when your disciples sit around and talk and talk and talk. This is the podcast for those weary of just talking and ready to start activating in the mission Jesus gave us to change the world. The Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, where disciples and disciple makers gather to grow and go together. Here's your host, Dr. Matt Friedemann. Hey, Disciple Makers, great to have you with us today. Remember now, the place for a man, for a woman, completing all their powers is in the fight. And right now, here today, somewhere, making disciples of the nation. So stay tuned, stay encouraged. We have a rendezvous with destiny. All right, folks, so very good to have you with us. And listen, got an exciting program here today. Uh, Going to have Dave Schroner on here in just a moment or two. And uh, he's our Old Testament expert guy here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And he's going to be sharing with us a little bit about First and Second Chronicles, discipleship, dynamic discipleship precepts out of First and Second Chronicles. So we'll get to that here in just a minute. A couple of issues I wanted to cover with you first. Um, I saw a couple of news items from Crosswalk.com, and I thought they were interesting enough, fascinating enough to just kind of throw out to you. One of the ones was, <laughs> I don't know, maybe maybe I shouldn't get so excited about this one, but this was an article written by Diane Gates at Crosswalk.com. Ten times Christians should actually judge others. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe that resonates because I want to judge others. I, I don't know about that. But I don't think that's true. But let me just tell you, I'm not going to go over an article. Look, go look it up, though. It's, it, it's, it's interesting. Ten times Christians actually should judge others. But let me just tell you, one of the times... Well, that's not even mentioned here that I think Christians should judge others, and that's when they're actually asked to judge me. Now, let me tell you about this a little bit. Uh, my son was in here just yesterday, and we were talking about this and that issue, and he asked me, wanted me to clarify again about the listening tour that I've done. And I've done a couple of these, and I think everybody probably ought to do this, you know, as much as you think Jesus wants you to do it, maybe a couple times a year, maybe maybe once a month. But I actually went on a listening tour because I kept reading in the Proverbs about how the wise man loves rebuke appreciates rebuke, embraces rebuke. I'm thinking, when do I get rebuke? When do I get someone talking to me with their knuckles on my desk, looking me straight in the eye and telling me something I might not want to hear, but need to hear? When does that happen? And I thought to myself, not much, not much at all. And so I thought, well, let me make it happen then. And so what I did was I went on a listening tour and had about four people in my life that I went to and said, listen, this is what I'd like to have you do. I'm going to, I just asked for an appointment, sat down with them and said, I I don't need to hear the good stuff. Don't, don't, don't waste your time on affirmation because I know you love me and and you affirm me. What I need to hear is because you love me, because you affirm me, what's the things that you've seen in my life that maybe, just maybe I have need to hear about that might not be so positive. And I'm just going to have to tell you, and I was over there taking notes as fast as I could, and I had quite quite a revelation or two, and that it was very helpful. And I, listen, did not think that defending myself was at all appropriate in that moment. I just said, whatever you say, I'm going to take and I'm going to thank you for it. And I took it and I thanked them for it. Then I wrote it down and thought, now, is this true? 
And if it wasn't true, it's okay. And some of the stuff I thought, well, man, might be true, might not. But some of the things they said was, oh my goodness, I need to pay attention to that. I called it the listening tour. Can I commend that to you? Can I say that's a great thing for a disciple to do? Go on a listening tour. Just get two or three people, might zoom them in, might call them up. You might uh, say, listen, let's, uh, let's get an appointment. Let's get lunch together and just offer that opportunity to them. An opportunity to, yeah, I wouldn't call it rebuke, but that's what it is. An opportunity to rebuke you, an opportunity to come up and, I don't know, I guess I like Proverbs 27, 17 best. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Just could you sharpen me today? Could you say something that maybe I don't want to hear, but I need to hear? Can you say something you see that if told, I could grow from, I could learn from, I could benefit from. So I'm just going to say that that's a, that's a great thing to do. Go on a listening tour and do it once a month, do it a couple times a year, just do it whenever, but try it at least one time to see if it doesn't help. Now, is it pleasant? <laughs> I, I, I'm not so sure it was pleasant. Uh, pleasant's not what you're looking for here. Sharpening is what you're looking for here. So just, just try it, listening to her. And if you, if you like it, if it benefited you, then guess what? Uh, and again, one of the great verses in the Bible that I love to go to on this very thing is, uh, is Psalm, we talked about this on the program before, but Psalm 26, 1 and 2. And here's where David says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I've walked in my integrity, and I've trusted in the Lord without wavering. I, that's a radical prayer. He's saying straight to God, I have done what you've wanted me to do. I am a man of integrity. I have followed you without wavering. Wow. Then he says, now these words aren't in there, but it's almost like he says, but maybe if I miss something, now that those are beyond the text, maybe if I miss something, or maybe if that's not true, or maybe if you still want to show me something, Examine me, Lord, and put me to the test. Refine my mind and my heart. Now, refine, back in those days, was a matter of fire. Burn away everything that's not you in my mind and in my heart. Examine me, Lord. Now, you're thinking, well, okay, that's a bold prayer. <laughs> because, you know, there are some people in the Bible that were put to the test, and that's basically what David's saying. Put me to the test and burn away everything that's not you. Examine me, Lord. Now, I've walked in my integrity. I've trusted you without wavering. But maybe, just maybe, I haven't put me to the test. Refine me, because I want to be all yours. I want to be all yours. All right. So anyway, interesting article back to cross crosswalk.com. Uh, 10 times Christians should actually judge others by Dan Gates. Another interesting article. I thought cross crosswalk treat me good this week. Crosswalk.com had something called, and this is a, a favorite. Sometimes I get asked to do commencement addresses. Now, I don't know why I don't think I'm particularly good at it, but they'll ask me, Hey, would you like, would you be willing? And frequently they're homeschool. Uh, you know, because we were homeschoolers and we're in that community and people know me from talk radio back here in the Mississippi area, or they know me from the newspaper columns I used to write. And that's kind of wearing off now. It's been some years since I've done that, but still they kind of remember me. They'll ask me to come in. 
again, don't do it much, but occasionally someone at, and one of my favorite themes is whatever you do, don't pursue your dreams. Don't pursue your, <laughs> that kind of goes, that kind of rubs people the wrong way. I get it. I don't, I don't mind rubbing people the wrong way. What I want to do is sort of slap them upside the head with a different thought. Don't follow your passions. Don't follow your dreams. Don't do it. Find out what God wants you to do. Do that thing. Find out what he's calling you to do. Do that thing. Find out what his dream for your life is. Follow that dream. Follow your own passions. No, 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 no. And so the the guy named Jordan Rayner writes this. He says, I grew up hearing career advice from my parents that likely sounds very familiar to you, Especially, especially, he says, if you're a millennial like me, follow your passions, follow your dreams, do whatever makes you happy. And I thought to myself, it's not just if you're a millennial, no kidding, I'm a boomer and heard that all the time. Not particularly from my parents, but from everybody else, just at any rate, get down to this paragraph. He says, more than any generation before us, millennials have had plenty of opportunity to do whatever makes us happy. We've done it professionally, and yes, we are apparently the least satisfied generation ever at work. According to Gallup, millennials are the least engaged generation in the workplace. Clearly, clearly, says Jordan, the advice to follow our passions is a losing strategy for finding work we love. And and, and it said a study by a Yale researcher helps explain why the number one predictor of whether or not someone will describe their work as calling is the number of years they've spent practicing their discipline. In other words, the path to vocational happiness is not found in following your passions. It's found in sticking with something long enough to become masterful at your craft. It turns out that passion is a side effect of mastery. You get to love what you do by getting really good at it, and you get really good at it by doing it a long time. Isn't that fascinating? So I'll just go back to uh, to my opener here and just say, what you want to do is to find out what God wants you to do. Do that and do it for a long time. And for my money... I'll just tell you how I've lived my life. I'm not saying it's the only way to live life. I do think it's the best way to live life is find out what God wants you to do. Go do that thing. And then I think there's also added benefit in doing it in the same place as long as you possibly can. I think there's too much moving around, folks. And we do it professionally. And we do it because, hey, there seems to be a better opportunity over there. Don't always leave town for the better opportunity. If you're happy where you're at, if you're fulfilled where you're at, it may be that God has made you happy and fulfilled you there because that's where he wants you. And no bigger and better isn't necessarily better, if you know what I mean. So I have stayed, I've just begun my 36th year here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And I am, in this moment of my life, I'm more fulfilled, I'm happier, I'm probably more effective than ever before. And I'm so thrilled to be able to say, my career, at Wesley Biblical Seminary, and, you know, I'm also a pastor, and I've uh, done that for 22 years, and, and and as a pastor, is it's going wonderfully, and I'm so very grateful. That's not the only way to live life. You know what? I do too, but it's at least one good way to lead a life, and I, I'm going to say 
it may be that that bigger and better thing, the thing that's going to pay you more, the thing that's going to take you to a better location, isn't necessarily God's will for your life. And don't consider it so, if you know what I mean. Now, one of the sponsors for our program today is Wesley Biblical Seminary. All right, folks, I've taught here for, I've just told you here, 35 years, I'm on my 36th, just begun my 36th year. One of the best seminaries in the world. You need to check us out at wbs.edu. We have a lay program called the Wesley Institute. You're going to love it. Uh, You lay people need to get in that program. It covers for one year the Bible. It covers for one year theology. And I I think you'll get a beginning uh, seminary training program just by getting in that and I think you'll really love it. We have an undergraduate program. Yep, got a college, and you need to discover that, and it's exceedingly well-priced. So check that out, and of course, we've got master's programs that we've done since we began this seminary, and we even have a doctoral program, a DMN program, so check it out. It is Wesley Biblical Seminary. Find it at wbs.edu. A couple of things I want you to apprise yourself of. I, uh, here at the Life Changing Discipleship Podcast, we want you to know that we uh, are very much up into the family, and we just got a new book out called The New Discipleship in the Home. So you need to check that out. You've heard about it on this program, but you need to go to Amazon.com, punch up Matt Friedemann and The New Discipleship in the Home, and get that volume. I think you will love it, and you'll love it very much. All right, let's turn the corner here, y'all, and... I'm excited. I'm always excited to have my dear friend Dave Schreiner on the program. And of course, one of the things that uh, we love about him best is is he likes that Older Testament. Uh, He is the Old Testament professor here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. Thanks, Dave, for joining us today. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me on, Matt. Really appreciate it. All right, listen, uh, what we're going to do today, I've already told everybody, First and Second Chronicles, we want five discipleship precepts from... First and Second Chronicles, which is covering a lot of ground, we get that. Uh, but one of the things I'd like to know is, doesn't First and Second Chronicles kind of cover uh, what's already been covered? Maybe a little bit different way. Get clue us in about First and Second Chronicles. Yeah, yeah, that's actually, and, and I'm going to throw you for I'm going to throw a little curveball at you right here, Matt. Um, I'm actually going to give you four instead oh. of five. Now you may say, whoa, 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 I'm getting gypped here. No, 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 no. These are going to be a lot more grand scheme, uh, larger perspective, and it's going to give your audience a way to kind of find their own little specific applications. So it's going to be a lot broader scope. And the reason is, 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 is because of what you just alluded to. First and Second Chronicles are going to cover a lot of what we've already talked about in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Um, now, the big difference with Chronicles when it comes to comparing it with first and second Kings and first and second Samuel is that most importantly, all the negative stuff is not going to be covered. So we are not going to hear about David's sin with Bathsheba. We are actually not going to hear about any of the Kings from Israel in first and second Chronicles, only if they come in direct contact with the Kings of Judah. Now there are historical reasons for this because of when Chronicles was written in the context of the writer on why this happens. But because we've already overlapped so much content with first and second Samuel and first and second Kings, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. And the lessons and the precepts and the discipleship principles that are, I'm going to talk about over the next few minutes are a lot more broad in scope. And they're going to create a broader framework within which your audience can kind of uh, move around a little bit. 
Okay, so here we go. Desoption blessings, and he's only give us going to give us four, and that means, of course, everybody gets a little money back from this broadcast today. So let's just send in for your refund. Uh, but we're going to cover four instead of five because, hey, that's what the great Shriner wants to do. So here we go, Dave Shriner, Doctor Dave Shriner, who's going to give us now number one, desoption blessing from First and Second Chronicles. Right. So this key, so First and Second Chronicles begins with nine chapters of genealogy. And they're really hard to read because it's so-and-so goes to so-and-so goes to so-and-so. And it's very, very difficult. However, it's very, very important because Chronicles is setting up his history uh, in the context of the larger national and cosmic heritage. So here's the principle. Um, discipleship needs to recognize its heritage. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this could go a lot of different ways. So you have, you know, obviously you want to recognize your Christian heritage. And that means not just the Christians around you and the, and the ones that have affected you most recently, but also the more distant heritage. So it's, it's very important for us when we're going through discipleship programs to contextualize us, to contextualize the people that you're leading and put them in the context of something larger. And this is very important because we need to understand that very reality. We are a part of something very large that reaches back eons and eons and reaches back so far and we are a part of that heritage and so as you are leading people through this journey called discipleship it provides us a sense of excitement to know that we are a part of something that's a lot more bigger than just us mm. and this I, 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 I would just sorry yeah just to go on a little bit this manifests itself in chronicles in a number of different ways not you not only do you just have the genealogies but what Chronicles does is he sets up this typological kind of presentation to where certain people in Judah's history become almost symbolic of people later on down the road. So, for instance, um, the Chronicler is going to look back to David, not just because he's an important person, but also because of what David symbolizes for the people now. Because the Chronicle is writing in the post-exilic context, and he's calling the attention back to people like David back to people like Solomon and even people like Hezekiah and Josiah because of what they symbolize and the types that they represent. In other words, you now in this particular context can be like David or like Hezekiah or like Josiah when you do X, Y, or Z. And I think, and I think again, I think for the context of discipleship, that's really, really important. Okay. First off, let me just say, there's a number of ways we could take this. Let me take it this way. First off, Matt Freedom, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be a disciple maker and I'm going to be a disciple, I need to look at first off my immediate context, which is mom, dad, people who have poured into my life. Uh, I need to look at maybe a denominational context, which is to say for me, that would include John Wesley and Francis Asbury and Phineas Brzee and looking at these people. And boy, just that alone is pretty rich stuff. But even beyond that, the broader evangelical uh, community of Martin Luther and John Calvin, and I don't know, we go all the way back to the early guys, Augustine, Aquinas. And then even beyond that, the broader dynamic would be, let's let's start including the, the biblical uh, context. And obviously we want to do that. But I think you've got a, a great point here. Those boring lists of genealogical names uh, weren't boring to the people reading them. 
Well, no, absolutely not. Yes. And, and they were absolutely critical because it defined who they were. It put them in a cosmic context. Remember, these genealogies go all the way back to the foundation of the world. So it's it's putting the nation of Israel, i.e. God's people, in, a, in the context that goes all the way back to the foundations of the world. And I actually would take it a step further, Matt. And I would say that not only do we look at these people like the reformers, like the early church fathers, like the people in, in ancient Israel, we don't just look at them just to look at them. We look at them in order to learn from them and try to figure out, okay, what were some of the things that they experienced that we may also be experiencing and that we can learn from them in order to carry us along this journey of discipleship in our own specific context right here. No, and I love that. So so let's get, get back down to what I was suggesting a moment ago. If you're looking at your family, what are the positive things that have been handed down to me? And if you're Matt Friedman, that's pretty rich stuff also. However, some shortcomings and some places that I need to improve upon what my uh, say parents and grandparents handed to me. And you can go right down the list and say that denominationally, you can say that in the broader context of evangelicalism, you can say that, uh, I, I think for Chronicles, uh, but you could also say first, first and second Samuel for second Kings, there's some positive stuff there, but there's some stuff to be wary of. Yes. Yes. It, it cuts both ways. I know, for instance, there are certain tendencies that run in my family just because of, of, of genetics and those types of things. And so, you know, the, the, all of these things affect one's discipleship journey, whether we like to admit it or not. And they're positive and they're also negative. And, and I think if we want to get the most out of our discipleship journey, we have to be aware of these things because of, like I just said, and like you're alluding to, they affect the journey. Oh, I'm into that. that. That's a brilliant point. Thank you for making it. And I think every time you come up with a genealogy in scripture, probably important to recognize it's not just in Chronicles. I think there are other places where we need to remember because the people who are listing those things were definitely remembering. Yes. Good stuff. Okay. Point number two, discipleship lesson from first and second Chronicles. Worship matters. Now, one of the things, and that's what I say, you say, oh, that's that's pretty bland. Well, it is bland, but it, worship permeates First and Second Chronicles in a way that it doesn't in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. Now, this isn't to say that the temple is not discussed and the tabernacle is not discussed and the Ark of the Covenant is not discussed in First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, because it is. However, when you read First and Second Chronicles, you really you begin to realize just how temple centric of a presentation it is. I mean, the focus on first and second Chronicles is going to largely be upon David and Solomon because, yep, you guessed it, they were the ones that formulated the plans and they built the temple. And the temple is it, according to the Chronicles uh, presentation. And so you're going to see lists of people that serve the temple. You're going to hear about musicians and you're going to hear about the creation and fabrication of instruments using, uh, uh, being used in the temple. And, and Solomon's dedication is going to be ratcheted up another notch. And, and, and later, on down the, later on down the line, you're going to read about kings and uh, kings like Hezekiah and Josiah who are going to be praised for the focus that they put back upon the temple. The temple is at the center of everything when it comes to first and second chronicles. And what does that mean? Well, that means that worship and your relationship with God needs to be at the heart and soul of discipleship. And so as you are going through this program of discipleship, however it's manifested in your specific program, how much does worship play into that? 
Do you worship alongside the people whom you're discipling? What do you go to church together? And if you don't go to church together, do you um, worship? Do you have worship elements within your meeting times and those types of things? It matters. And in a way that is just unprecedented across the rest of scripture, the chronicler puts the temple at the center. Everything revolves around the temple. And so I think that's a really important thing because, you know, in discipleship programs, at least in, in many modern circles, it's about, okay, let's get into the word. Let's get into scripture. Let's see what scripture has to say. And that's great. That uh, absolutely. Amen. Hallelujah. But your, 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 um, your interaction with scripture also has to be worshipful. And that interaction of scripture also has to happen alongside regular and consistent and powerful acts of worship. And so mm-hmm. I would actually argue that you can't have a healthy discipleship program without a healthy element of worship involved. Yeah, and just throwing in a reminder here, y'all, in our basic paradigm for discipleship on the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast, our 5Q model, that's the second. And frankly, David, frequently my favorite thing to do of the whole thing, we start with Scripture because we want to know biblically What's the God look like? We're supposed to be worshiping. Then we worship. But well, I just tell you, it's a beautiful time. Every five Q meeting we have. So check out five Q discipleship. Uh, get that book on the on the internet. But Dave, let me ask you this: Are there appropriate and inappropriate ways to worship in First and Second Chronicles? And by extension, are there appropriate and inappropriate ways to worship today? What might those be? Yeah, I would say. You know, I would say. Yes, I think I think Chronicles recognizes inappropriate ways to worship. So, for instance, it's the, it's the great example of um, Uzziah. This is the guy in First and Second Chronicles that he engages in an act of worship that is unsanctioned, and he's and he he becomes leprous because of it, and he lives out the rest of his days um, leprous. Uh, because of his illegitimate act of worship. This is a guy who, for whatever reason or a variety of reasons, decides that, yes, I'm, I'm king. I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to go into the temple and do this. And he's got people saying, no, no, you, you don't you do not do that. And he ignores them. And he says, you know, I'm the king. You're not. To heck with you. You know, this is, this is, I'm and he gets punished. So, yes, absolutely. I do think Chronicles recognizes that there are, illegitimate ways to engage in worship. And it actually takes it another level. And that if you engage in those illegitimate acts of worship, you should expect to be punished. You should expect to have repercussions. Now, what do those things look like? You know, that's, you know, that's where the conversation happens. And I think nowadays, yes, there are, there continue to be illegitimate acts of worship. And yes, I think that if we engage in those things, particularly on a consistent basis, then we should accept repercussions to come down the pipe. Now, what are those things going to look like? I don't know. Um, and I think that we can, I think that in a, in all honesty, we should expect God to do whatever he wants. So uh, it all could, right, hang on, hang, hang, hang on just a minute. You know, and so I'm going to push you to know something for us out in the open here. Give me one cautionary yellow light blinking on and off that we to, in today's worship i'm mean, just saying all across what would be one thing that'd be really great for us to know about a possible inappropriate direction with our worship well how is god referenced in your modern worship songs i think that's one thing and it's it, you know it, it are are there specific acts you know so so one of the things I love about scripture in its, you know, context of the Psalms and the way that it worships is that it makes specific reference to what God did. 
And there are specific ways that pop up over and over and over again that are used to describe God. Essentially, who are we worshiping? Well, it's this guy. He's done this, 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 and this. And this is who we're worshiping. There is a tendency for a variety of reasons to push that stuff aside, um, water God down to, I don't know, certainly not necessarily the God of the Exodus or the God of salvation that saves people mightily from their sins and those types of things. So you know, if we find ourselves in a context of worship that begins to minimize the atoning work of Jesus Christ or the sanctifying work of Jesus Christ of the Holy Spirit um, in preference of something a lot more general and, and, and unspecified, that becomes, yeah, I think that that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a warning light that needs to go on. How are we talking about God? And are we making specific references to important aspects that are found in scripture, i.e. what he did on the cross for us and what he continues to do in us and wants to do in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. If we're marginalizing those things or if we're ignoring those things, then I think that we have to start asking serious questions about who are we worshiping? What, what's going on in this act of worship? And an extreme example I mean, I remember in recent memory when you had the people up in uh, the up in Union Theological Seminary up in up in New York City that were openly confessing sins to plants. And their rationale was, well, because our sins affect everything and even in certain instances, the larger ecology, the uh, the ecological context we find ourselves in, then we need to confess our sins to the very. No, that's just. That's just ludicrous. That is an extreme example of of how far unsanctioned, illegitimate, just bad acts of worship, unorthodox, heretical, we'll call them heretical, heretical acts of worship can go. All right. Well, that's incredible stuff. All right. So discipleship lessons from First and Second Chronicles. Number one, uh, consider your heritage. Uh, number two, worship is huge. Number three. Uh, I would say know how to intercede. And I think this is really important for people who are discipling others, you know, so there's like, you know, the mentor-mentee relationship. Discipleship is about um, uh, bringing people alongside you and, and, and investing in them, and uh, for lack of a better term, mentoring. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's an undeniable element uh, within the discipleship program that that involves. Yes, everybody speaks into everybody, but there is, there is a way, uh, there is something to be said about uh, within every discipleship group, there's one person that seems to kind of take the lead. And that's great. Um, and I would say that that person, whoever it is, needs to know how to intercede for people in their group, because those people will then learn how to intercede for other people. And this brings us to Solomon and Solomon's temple dedication prayer. Yes, it's in first and second, uh, first and second Kings, but it's taken to a different level in first and second Chronicles. And, and it's emphasized. And one of the things that we love to emphasize is how Solomon basically puts the onus upon God when he's, when he's, when he's praying to God and he says something to the effect of, you know, if they find themselves being punished and they then confess their sins, then basically please restore them. And I think that's an amazing, amazing picture to where you have this guy who is taking it upon himself, having this candid conversation with God and showing him, look, if these people do certain things in the context of their sins, then please, please, please hear them, be gracious to them. And that's that's not something that he's pulling out of left field. That's completely in line with who Solomon knows God to be. That's completely in line with this character. And what Solomon is doing is basically saying, if they do this, then live up to who we know you to be.
And that becomes a model for the people to emulate when they find themselves in the context of sin. So when they want restoration, they know that they can go to God and say, God, I have sinned. I, I need help. I need to be restored. Live up to who I know you to be and restore me. So he, he kind of puts on display this great model of intercession on how to pray for people, even when they don't necessarily know it, and how to have a healthy interaction with God um, in, in light of our, our needs and our relationship. Disciple maker as interceder. Love that. All right. Discipleship lesson number four and apparently the final yes. point today. This is, a, this is a big one. And it piggybacks all, all off of this guy, off of this concept that I just talked about with Solomon. Solomon makes the statement, um, you know, if they find themselves in sin, they confess and cure them, restore them. Manasseh is the great example of this in the book of, of Chronicles. And so this is my principle. Um, there's always room for repentance and therefore always room for restoration. So if you know the story of Manasseh in the book of First and Second Kings, Manasseh is the, is the son of Hezekiah. Hezekiah is one of the great reformers of, of Judean history. He's before Josiah, but he restores the temple and does great things. It's Josiah and Hezekiah who are celebrated as the two great reformers in First and Second Kings. Well, Hezekiah has a son named Manasseh, and Manasseh, the text tells us, Manasseh undoes everything. So all the good that Hezekiah does, Manasseh undoes it. He reverts back to everything, reinstitutes pagan worship, uh, and does everything opposite of what Hezekiah did. And the text tells us in First and Second Kings that that action, the actions of Manasseh, actually secures the judgment of Judah. So judgment is sealed for Judah because of the actions of Manasseh. And Manasseh is villainized in 2 Kings because of it. Within 2 Chronicles, though, we're given another side of the picture. Yes, we recognize the fact in Chronicles that Manasseh did terrible things and he secured uh, the avenue of judgment for Judah. However, what Chronicles shows us, which is something unique about it, it also tells us about Manasseh's repentance. There is a section in 2 Chronicles that talks about Manasseh in exile. And apparently and when he's in exile, he realizes things and he then makes a movement to confess God. He confessed to God his sins, his errors as a king and the implications that it had, that it had for everybody. And it's out of that. You can read about this in, um, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head, uh, but it's in 2 Chronicles. It is in chapter 30. Um, uh, 33. Uh, and you can read about how Manasseh was eventually restored and he goes on to have this, this, this long reign, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's at the very end and, and beginning in verse 14 of chapter 33. And you can read about Manasseh's prayer, et cetera. Um, so yes. So Manasseh shows us that despite the egregiousness of our sins, there is always room for restoration. There is always room for repentance. And I think this plays itself out for Chronicles as a whole, because remember, Chronicles is the book, the history that was written after the exile, after God's people were brought back into the promised land in order to be restored. And so that kind of dovetails with that a lot. So Manasseh's story in Chronicles is very, very powerful because you see him at the depths of everything and how he finds his way out of those depths based on his prayer, based on his confession, based on his repentance.
Mm. One, two, three, four. Excellent points. Excellent discipleship points from First and Second Chronicles. Hey, thanks so very much, uh, Dave. Listen, uh, I just real quick question: Are you rich yet? Because uh, I'm just saying, from from the uh, windfall of your new book, First and Second Kings, put out by Kirk's series of Kriegel Press. I just imagine by now, you guys are planning vacations and bigger houses, and surely the windfall is incredible. Unfortunately, no, I have not seen it. <laughs> however, however, it is on sale. And you can buy it now. You can buy it on Amazon. You can go to creekalacademic.com and, and search through it there. You can get it in a couple locations. Um, yeah, it's relatively inexpensive. It's it's not one of these things that you're going to have to spend $75 to purchase. Um, I think it's around $30. And, um, you know, it's 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 not overly cumbersome. So if you're interested in First and Second Kings, particularly with what it has to, has to say um, about uh, preaching and, and preaching ideas and those types of things, then, uh, you know, take a look at it. Uh, Lee and I would both uh, love to hear what you have to say about it and uh, and maybe even pick up a copy for yourself. Well, yeah, real quick. Uh, by, the, by the way, the checks only come quarterly, so you wouldn't know quite yet whether you're rich or not. But uh, <laughs> this is great because First and King, Second Kings got a lot of rich material. But what happens here is Dave does the serious exegetical, the serious analysis of First and Second Kings, and then he has a partner come along and says, now this is how you could preach it. These are some preaching ideas. And I, I just think it's a wonderful idea for a series. So check it out. Uh, Dave Schreiner, uh, First and Second Kings, uh, Kriegel Press, put it out. Kirk's series of Kriegel Press. And I can't wait to get my copy, uh, David. And I'm not waiting for you. I'm ordering it myself uh, in the next few moments. So thanks. Thanks for your serious uh, work on this and other things. Hey, listen, it's been an honor to have you listen to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast with Matt Freedom. And today, Dave Schreiner, hey, check out our Facebook page, Life-Changing Discipleship. You can check me personally, Matt Friedman, out on Twitter and check out our books at Amazon.com. Just type in Matt Friedman into the search engine and away you go. And always, always tell others about our podcast. And remember... My wife thanks you, my daughter thanks you, my sons and their wives thank you, and I can assure you that I thank you for listening to the Life-Changing Discipleship Podcast today. Love God, live clean, keep the faith, make disciples, and God bless you, dear friends. We'll see you back here real soon. Yeah.